Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. This is Laura Harris-Hills, and I'm here today with Jared Ludlow to talk about the ancient Near East and its peoples as part of our ongoing series on the study of the Old Testament. Jared Ludlow has taught in the Ancient Scripture Department at BYU since 2006. Before that, he taught at BYU Hawaii. Jared received his bachelor's degree from BYU in Near Eastern Studies, his master's degree from the University of California at Berkeley in Biblical Hebrew, and his PhD in Near Eastern Religions from UC Berkeley and the Graduate Theological Union. His primary research interests are in ancient Judaism and early Christianity. He enjoys teaching Bible courses, Book of Mormon, world religions, and history. Jared served an LDS mission to Brazil and has also lived in Germany and Israel, including teaching at the BYU Jerusalem Center. Most of the information that we're going to talk about today can be found in the textbook, A Bible Reader's History of the Ancient World, which is a textbook that they do use at the Jerusalem Center to teach about Old Testament peoples and places. You have three chapters in the book. Can you tell us why it's so important to study the peoples and places of the Old Testament? The Old Testament records a lot of the Israelite history, but being where they're located at kind of a crossroads between Egypt and Mesopotamia and the Mediterranean and so forth, they have a lot of interactions with other peoples around them. And we see that coming through the Old Testament. So I think it really helps to learn more about the surrounding cultures and civilizations to understand what's going on in the Old Testament, but also they share some similar cultural aspects. And so understanding what Mesopotamians and Egyptians think about the afterlife or the sacred, we can see some of that shared influence from throughout the region. I found that the Old Testament is a high context book. The more I study, the more I realize I need to rely on experts to give me that extra context so I can understand it. You mentioned their worldview, which is very different than what our worldview is now, but it shaped how they wrote their literature. The major times of history in the Old Testament are broken up into periods. We're going to talk about the primeval, Davidic kingdom, exile, and second temple periods. So let's start at the beginning. Most of us probably have a basic understanding about the cradle of civilization beginning by the Tigris and Euphrates rivers and a place called Babylon. How much archaeological evidence do we have to help give us context for those periods of time? When we go to the very earliest civilizations, and the Near East has several of them, like you mentioned in Mesopotamia with the Tigris-Euphrates rivers, along the Nile with the Egyptians, up in Turkey where they relied more on rain rather than rivers. This whole region we sometimes refer to as the Fertile Crescent because it goes around more desert areas where they couldn't inhabit. Among these early groups in the Fertile Crescent, we do have some archaeological evidence that goes back thousands of years B.C. of structures 
defensive fortifications and towers. And then finally, you know, we start seeing the beginnings of cities, urban settlements where thousands of people will be living close together and maybe build monumental architecture like a temple or these kinds of things date back to about between 3000 4000 BC some of these archaeological features that show that it was an urban development and and kind of a new phase in human civilization what kind of writings did they have and how did they make them especially how did they make them in a form that would survive to today because if they were just paper they disintegrate the medium of these early writings is important for how they've been preserved And some of the earliest, uh, particularly in Mesopotamia, were written on clay tablets. Probably started mostly as just economic records, just to keep track of inventories or shipments, these kinds of things, government records, taxes. Not necessarily exciting material, but they show the beginnings of writings where they kind of develop from just picture pictographs to a... abbreviated form of them to then a sign and eventually you know we'll start getting alphabets and all but that takes a while because a lot of these were written on clay they actually were preserved because fire you know would just bake the clay and and help preserve it and it was a material that wouldn't decompose as much unless it was left in water as papyrus or leather or wood that naturally deteriorates over time. You spent a lot of time in your chapter talking about the geography of the area and how it affected some people different than other people and even affected their worldview because of the geography. Do you want to talk about its impact a little bit? When we think of the ancient Near East, which is today what we could refer to as the Middle East, we tend to think of it as a desert area or at least semi-arid and for a lot of it that's true and yet there are some places with uh, Mesopotamia and, and Egypt where river valleys were important and they relied on that versus places like the land of Israel that didn't have major rivers and relied on rain. Fertility of the land was always very important to these peoples. Prayers for rain and for good harvest became part of the, the rituals and, and the, the religious calendar throughout the year. And you still see that in a lot of the Jewish festivals that they do. In places like Mesopotamia, the flooding there uh, was unpredictable and, and very destructive. And so they tended to view the gods as destructive, as hateful, as... Even know, capricious. Yes. They would try to appease the gods through their rituals, but They didn't feel like, you know, these benevolent gods. Versus in Egypt, the Nile would regularly flood, but it was predictable. It was after the winter rains down south, and and then the river would flow north and overflow the banks, but it would just kind of go to a certain extent, leave behind this nice new silt soil, and then they could come back and harvest. And so they kind of saw it as a renewal of creation every year. Water came and covered the land, and then... It receded and new land was left. They tended to view the gods as being benevolent and helpful. And and again, they still did rituals to make sure they remained happy and brought this flooding. But it did affect a lot of their outlook and religious life and, and even political life. Because 
if destructive flooding happened to have occurred in Egypt or the flooding didn't come as it should have, they started wondering, well, maybe the pharaoh's not doing what he's supposed to and maybe we need a new pharaoh. And so it could even change the political leadership. So we have these maps at the end of our Bible, but it doesn't really tell the whole story. Sometimes we use Babylon and Mesopotamia synonymously. Are they the same? Babylon initially is a city. Uh, Later on, it becomes a kingdom, initially kind of a city-state, then a small empire. And there's actually two periods that it becomes an empire. And so sometimes we tend to think of Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar and, uh, you know, the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile. But that's really the Neo-Babylonians that comes later. Earlier Babylonians often can associate with Hammurabi, and we've heard of his law code and, and those kinds of things. It can be both a city and an empire, but the region is usually called Mesopotamia, which just means between the two rivers, between the rivers, and that's the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Okay, in the 20th century, we can settle Phoenix, Arizona, (laughs) but 3,000 years ago, that would not have worked. What kind of factors played into where settlements sprung up? The number one factor in why Phoenix would be difficult back then is water. You needed water source, and that's why river valleys are usually where we see the cradle of civilization and where they first settle. If you don't have regularly strong-flowing river, then you need to find springs or other sources of river. So, for example, in the case of Jerusalem, there was a spring, the Gihon Spring, and that's where the city first settled. So water is number one. Uh, Second, you do need to have land that you can produce agriculture, Uh, So arable land is very important. And again, that can vary from wide open plains to along the Nile. It's a very thin strip of land, but it's very fertile. But you go beyond that and it's desert. But they have enough of arable land, or they did anciently, that they could sustain their population. The third kind of key would be defensibility. Once you start finding a good place and starting to produce and building structures and these kinds of things, you want to defend that so that another group doesn't come and say, oh, well, we like what you have. We'll just take it for ourselves. And so defensibility is important to a city. And then lastly, you know, some kind of trade connections. There's very few regions of the world that can produce everything they need independently. And so they rely on trade with others to be able to bring in products, resources that they don't have themselves. Coming back to Jerusalem, from a defense perspective, it wasn't the most ideal location. It did have water, but they were able to make do and build walls and other things to make up for it actually being a little bit lower than some of the hills around, which is normally where you want to build. But because the water source was down lower, that's where they built. You've already mentioned Egyptians and Babylonians, but we read about other major groups in the Old Testament as well, like Canaanites, Israelites, and Assyrians, and then bunches of smaller groups. But let's just do the big ones. Canaanites, Israelites, Assyrians. Who are these people and where do they live? Canaanites kind of depends on 
what time period or exactly which group you're talking about, but usually we're using it as an umbrella term for a lot of smaller groups that live in the region of Canaan, which today would be the area of Israel and parts of Syria and Lebanon. So what we often call the Levant is another term for this region. Among them you can have like the Jebusites would be a subgroup of Canaanites. And they're just the people that had been settled in this land uh, that then get added to by other groups that come in like Sea Peoples or the Israelites. And the Israelites, it's a lot of debate about their earliest connections to the Canaanites. They could be just a subset of the Canaanites, or according to the Old Testament, they come out of Egypt and they encounter these Canaanites. But remember that before Jacob and his family went into Egypt, they were living in Canaan, and there's a lot of offshoots of Esau and others that continued to live in that region that didn't go down into Egypt. Many people sprung out of the Canaanites, didn't they? And the civilization was about dead by the time Israel started writing? The Canaanites went through various phases of strength or development, and parts of them were severely uh, weakened by sea peoples coming from the area of Greece and, and elsewhere that Philistines are the ones we most remember that is a offshoot of the sea peoples. Some of their cultures, like in Ugarit, uh, had been destroyed or you know severely weakened but their influence continued and certainly Canaanites continued for a while after that and and it's really to the Canaanites that we owe a lot for the development of the alphabet the simplification of rather than having to memorize hundreds or thousands of signs we simplify it to 24 letters I think was the original Canaanite alphabet you had also asked about the Assyrians, and the Assyrians were a group that arose in Mesopotamia and became a very strong, fierce uh, empire and spread throughout the Fertile Crescent and even down towards Egypt. They kind of begin this period of imperial domination of the land of Israel that we see really for the rest of the Bible where the Assyrians get replaced by the Babylonians, the Babylonians get replaced by the Persians, the Persians get replaced by Alexander the Great and the Greeks, the Greeks get replaced by the Romans. And so for the rest of biblical history, it's one empire after another that dominates. And the only kind of semi-period of Jewish independence is the Hasmonean or the Maccabees for about 100 years shortly before the time of Jesus' birth, until the Romans came and changed that dynamic. But a lot of the Bible, particularly the later prophetic books and so forth, is written in that context of facing these imperial powers and the people trying to rely on God and have faith that he could deliver them. I had this thought as I was reading your chapter. Sometimes we think of the borders like those on a map pretty clear nowadays we have border control so you're not going to go into a different country without knowing it but they didn't have that back then they didn't even have what we have in the united states hello you're entering oklahoma it was kind of border well i should ask you instead of making this assumption was it kind of like 
fluid borders about that hill, about that river? And did the people respect the borders and say, hey, I'm a Canaanite descendant. I need to just stay <laughs> this side of this hill. Yeah, I think when we talk about the earliest political groupings, a lot of them were city-states. And that's kind of ambiguous to define because you have kind of a central city that dominates the region around, but how far is that region? Does a village that's 10 miles away want to be a part of it to partake of some of those resources? Or do they feel like they're being controlled by that city and so they're trying to sneak away? And so I think you're right that it is kind of nebulous as far as what the borders of some of these were. In some cases, it's a little clearer where you have a river that divided uh, kingdoms or something. But, you know, when we look at Israelite history, they divide up into tribal regions. But I'm sure that some of that was, well, wait, we really want that hillside for our inheritance. Uh, And so they probably scuffled over, you know, trying to define where these were. But mostly it was just where the resources were, where the water was. If they were mining for metal or these kind of things, that's what they wanted to control. That's what they were concerned about, not so much okay, let's draw this line so that all of this land is ours. As long as they had access to the resources, that's what I think they were more concerned about. You talked a little bit about where the Israelites came from. The Bible says they're the offspring of Abraham. Science says they probably came from the Canaanites. Do we have independent verification that the Israelites were a nation other than the Bible? Probably our best outside source from the Bible, recognizing that there is a ethnic group called the Israelites, is the Merneptah Stella that comes from Egypt, from one of the pharaohs, Merneptah, who went on a conquest throughout the land of Canaan and you know, northeast of Egypt. Of course, in their record, they list all of these peoples and lands and cities that he conquered. You always have to take those a little bit with a grain of salt because it's a royal scribe who is writing it. And of course, his job is to make the pharaoh look as good as possible. So he's going to say that he was successful in everything. It was even labeled as propaganda. Yeah, I think it's a way for the king or the pharaoh to show how powerful he is so that people will respect him, both his own people as well as those around him, so that the same thing won't happen to them. History is a funny thing. We think when we have written records, then we know what happened. But we don't know if they were really telling the truth, and definitely they were telling it from their point of view. Definitely they have their own perspectives, and so how much they're biased by that is a big question. But in this Merneptah Stella, it mentions some, as I mentioned, cities or lands. And I'm not an Egyptologist, but from what I understand, uh, they have what they call determinatives that are little uh, symbols that mark whether it's a city that's being named or if it's a land. Or they also have a determinative for a people. And in the Merneptah Stella, it mentions Israel but it has a determinative of a people. And this dates to around 1208 BC. So it seems to point out that Israelites were recognized enough as a group, but they maybe weren't powerful and strong in a land that they you know, were recognized as, oh, this is the land of Israel. And this actually chronologically fits in kind of well with Israelites coming out of Egypt and settling into the land that probably they are recognized, oh, here's a new group of people now coming in and settling among this area. But 
they haven't fully conquered it. There's still a lot of other peoples and cities and, and lands around, and the Egyptians recognize those as separate from the Israelites. We do have a count in the Bible from the Israelite perspective of how the Israelites came to be in Palestine. We call those conquest narratives, and they're not actually 100% historically correct either. So those of you who are bothered by the beginning chapters of Joshua, they're kind of brutal and gross and hard to understand. What can you tell us about conquest narratives and their relationship to history? That's a good question. And even within the Bible, I think you can see that if you read the book of Joshua, as you kind of alluded to, it is destruction. It is everything is gone. They've been victorious in everything. And basically, there's no more Canaanites. But then you open up to Judges, and it talks about how there's still Canaanites in the land. They still have to battle with them. That's why the Judges keep being brought up to help put down this threat or that threat. It shows us that probably the book of Joshua is giving us more of a theological perspective of God is bringing them in and they, in a sense, are conquering the land. But the reality on the ground probably is reflected more in Judges that, yes, they probably conquered this place and that area, but they didn't conquer this area or that city. So they still will have kind of a thorn in their side, if you will, from the Canaanites around them. They'll be tempted by some of their practices and their deities and these sorts of things. And the numbers are too high for that time period. Yeah, numbers in ancient texts are notoriously suspect. Again, kind of for that propaganda aspect that you mentioned earlier and how they counted them. We don't always know, and so it's a a challenge. Probably what we have when we talk about the conquest of the Israelites coming in the land of Israel is, is a combination of things where there were military battles and there were military victories, but there are probably military defeats and places where they probably just said, well, nobody's on this hill and it's got a water source, so why don't we just settle here? And a neighboring community is left, a Canaanite city or something uh, is just left there and until later they either assimilate or they eventually push them out or something. Let's talk about the Davidic monarchy. For modern day Christians it's all about Genesis but for the Jewish people it's all about David. No person is named in the Bible more than he is or revered. No person named in the Bible is mentioned in a non-biblical text contemporary with their lifetime until the mid-800s. We cannot find extra-biblical evidence of David that he was a king, only for the house of David in some Canaanite ruins called the Tel Dan, I believe. Is that where they are? Mm. This chapter was really interesting. It was a chapter not written by you, by another professor here, Dana Pike. I found it really interesting because I had just gone to Israel, and I'm pretty sure I saw them uncovering the city of David. (laughs) So I'm kind of confused here. How do we assess this time period where we have conflicting religious accounts and archaeological evidence? Yeah, when we are looking at the earlier biblical narrative, there is less outside of the Bible corroboration from other sources. And it's nice as we go 
later in time that we do see more and more of Assyrians mentioning or Babylonians mentioning kings that we also see mentioned in the Bible. But for this, what we call the United Monarchy period, Saul, David, Solomon, you're right that there isn't as much outside of the Bible that mention them. We just have this allusion to the house of David found in this inscription at Tel Dan that actually was I think significant because before that, some biblical scholars tended to put even less faith in a David figure. They thought it was more like a Camelot kind of story. Here was at least a mention of his royal lineage, if you will, that's alluded to. We have to rely a lot on the archaeology. And I think also it's important to see that when we do have later, more historical records corroborating things, that it's often a continuation of what we had earlier. For example, you know, they're uncovering city near the Valley of Elah that certainly was a, a fortified city during the time of, of David and Solomon, as the Bible talks about. We're not 100% sure if this is, you know, which city it is and so forth, but it goes along with the biblical record. So archaeology can help us see that some of these cities were fortified during that time period. Solomon did a lot of defensive fortifications, for example, in a lot of cities, and, and we see the these Solomonic gates that have kind of his signature of how he wanted them defended. And then the temple in Jerusalem, you know, we don't have much archaeologically about it, and we don't have any outside sources about it early on during the time of Solomon, but we do get Babylonians coming, and there's a temple there, and so you have to kind of retroject, I guess, a little bit of what we find later on and assume, but it is an assumption that it's a continuation of what was there a couple of hundred years It's a viable prospect. Mm -hmm. They did fortify during this time period. Yeah. With that in mind, how did ancient scribes writing this religious record differ from modern historians and how they document things? I think for the scribes, mostly they're concerned with a religious narrative. They're scribing any victory or good thing that happens to the gods or to a god. For modern historians, when we look at their sources, we look much more critically, like what kind of bias might they have? What kind of perspective are they coming from? We tend to not place everything on this god or that god, especially because in a lot of these ancient sources, they would just lift up their god and denigrate all the other gods, whereas modern historians tend to say, well, if you're going to denigrate any god, you've got to denigrate all of them. Or if you're going to lift any of them up, well, then you've got to lift all of them up. Plus, the way they wrote history was with a message in mind. So I've noticed if something falls exactly in place as a precursor to something happening later, and the writings were done in this later period, you could pretty much guess that it didn't happen that way. They kind of did mold history, didn't they? Again, you know, what is their purpose? Why are they writing it? I think, you know, more of the Gospels, for example, with Jesus. They didn't write the Gospels to tell us how tall he was, what his favorite food was. There's so many things about Jesus we don't know because that wasn't their purpose. Their purpose was to share their testimony of Jesus. And so they chose what events and stories and teachings of Jesus to share in their Gospels to present their testimony or what they hope people could learn about Jesus. 
And I think it would be similar to the Israelites. They wanted to tell the story of Jehovah, Yahweh, their God, and the covenant that they've made with him and how that covenant has influenced and strengthened them through the ages and how when bad things have happened, it's usually because they haven't kept that covenant. And so they are now in exile, for example, or something like that. It has, a, like you said, a message that it's trying to put across rather than just this happened and then this happened and then this happened. Most of the students that come into your classroom, I'm making a guess here, tell me if I'm right, have probably studied the Old Testament at face value. What the words say is what happened. Do you give them a talk the first day? Okay, this is a religious book, and as a religious book, it's very beautiful and tells a message. How do you broach that gap with them as you try to teach them? Well, I think most students come with just the stories of the Old Testament. They know a Daniel in the lion's den. They know a Noah in the ark, these kinds of things. I think the first step is to help them realize there's a lot more than just these kind of children's stories that you're familiar with. Some of that is this religious narrative of covenants and building a relationship with God, but a lot of it is their interactions with other cultures and peoples around them, as well as among themselves and the conflicts that arise there. And for me, one of the values I get out of the Old Testament is seeing how the individuals have to face challenges that are similar to what I have to face, making and keeping covenants with God or getting along with other peoples around me. Those are things that even thousands of years apart, we share. Many other parts of the Old Testament are completely different different and have very little in similarity to my life today. Yeah, I think a lot of us get stuck in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. <laughs> yes, especially Leviticus. <laughs> what does this mean? I don't really care. You mentioned Daniel. I know that story. King Nebuchadnezzar fits prominently into it. How did the rule of that king affect the region? King Nebuchadnezzar rose up to end the Assyrian Empire, kind of allied with the Medes, who were part of the forerunners to the Persians. But he was able to conquer Nineveh and take over the Assyrian Empire. He moves into the land of Israel, and here's where we see a lot of conflict between the Israelites and the Babylonians, because Israel was kind of stuck between Egypt and Babylon, and they had a hard time knowing which side is going to be the stronger one that we should ally with. And they kind of kept flipping sides, and it often came back to hurt them, especially from Babylon. And so Nebuchadnezzar came in and punished them whenever they turned towards Egypt and tried to ally with them against him. Eventually, of course, he moves into Jerusalem and as part of this final conquest, the Jerusalem temple is destroyed. And that was a huge, tragic event for the Jewish people because the temple represented God's presence. And suddenly, the temple is destroyed. Well, where is God for them now? And what should they do? And then many of them were carried away into exile to live in Babylon. And yet part of their covenant and the Abrahamic covenant was with the land. But now they're not in the land, and so how do they interact with God outside of the land? And especially if it's a God that is displeased with them and has left them to be defeated like this. Do we know when this occurred from the historical record? 
Yeah, there's quite a bit on both sides. Babylonian chronicles talk about some of the campaigns of Nebuchadnezzar, and of course the Bible does. And come in, I think uh, Nineveh was destroyed in 609, and so then they come in, you know, 600s, and then taken with various kings, I should say, of, of Judah are taken away. But the final destruction of the temple is 586-587 B.C., I was interested to find out that not all the Jewish people were taken away, or all the Israelites were taken away. They started with the elites and the armies, and eventually the temple was destroyed, as you mentioned. They took them to Babylon, so they're in a totally different culture instead of being isolated before. Did that affect the people? I think this is where they became Jews instead of Israelites. Am I right? Yeah, I think the exile is one of the factors that leads to what we call today Judaism or the Jews because they are recognized more as a, a religious group versus just the land of Judah or Judahites. They tended to leave a lot of the lower class people to work the land so they could still pay the tax. They knew the land, so they knew where the water was or the fields for the to herd and the orchards to harvest. But they wanted to keep tabs on the elites, and so that that's who they wanted to bring close to them. And so the Jews who now were in Babylon, like you said, it was a strange new environment to them, but it was also a prosperous environment. And suddenly to be by you know a river that flows like it does versus Jerusalem that relies so much on rain that they need to store it in cisterns and things like that, many of them got very comfortable. And I'm sure some assimilated, but many kept their Jewish beliefs and culture and created a strong community there so that when Jews started going back to Jerusalem, many of them said, I'm going to stay here. And there is a very strong Jewish community there for th- almost 2,000 years. When I was in graduate school, I did odd jobs for an Iraqi Jewish family that had lived in Mesopotamia, Iraq area, for centuries. And it's only in the last century with the establishment of the modern state of Israel and then the tensions between the surrounding Middle Eastern countries and Israel that Jews in these countries no longer felt very welcome and they had to leave. But we have a Babylonian Talmud that goes alongside a Palestinian or Jerusalem Talmud, which shows us that there was a vibrant enough community with religious scholarship that they created their own Talmud, and it was recognized as viable enough by other Jews even outside of Babylon. And then we have Aramaic as a language coming in. Yeah, Aramaic becomes a very common language among the Jews, and in fact, much of the Talmud and later Jewish writings is written in Aramaic rather than Hebrew. It becomes the common language. And when the Persian Empire rises, that even, I think, adds to that as well because they used it as a lingua franca for their empire. One of the chapters, I can't remember if it was one of yours, gave us some numbers for Jews at the time of Christ. A million in Egypt a million in Palestine and a million in Babylon or Mesopotamia. I don't think people realize there were more Jews outside of Palestine than in Palestine at the time of Christ. Alongside that, they had chosen to stay in those places. It wasn't at a time period then that they had to be outside. And so, yeah, Jews started realizing through the exile that they could live 
outside of the land and still have a relationship with God and a strong religious community. What many of them lacked was the temple. But even in Egypt, we have a community there that decided that they wanted a temple. We have correspondence between them and the high priest in Jerusalem about what they could do or not do within that temple in Egypt along the Nile River. As we've talked about all these people who come in and conquer this region that we call Palestine right now, or the state of Israel, they're usually coming in to put the people in bondage. And in the Old Testament, a lot of times the writers equate that to sin and not living the law of Moses enough. But there's one empire that conquers the Jewish people, and they're like, oh, we kind of like this. Let's talk about that last empire that they liked. The Persian Empire is the one that is seen as often the benevolent empire, and Cyrus, the initial ruler, is probably the reason for that, because he took the approach that rather than punish the people by destroying their temples and their gods and moving them to different parts of the empire where they're strangers. He thought, well, they probably would be more happy and their gods might be more happy if they were just allowed to return to their lands to build up their temples and worship as they wanted, as long as they pay their taxes and, and, and everything else. We have in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah about what we sometimes refer to as an edict of liberation, where the Jews are liberated from Babylon and could come back if they wanted to. We also have in the book of Isaiah a title given to Cyrus as the Messiah, the anointed one. He's the only non-Israelite that's ever called an anointed one, which is usually reserved for royalty or the Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus. Cyrus comes along and he allows people not just the Israelites, but other peoples, if they had been taken away from their lands to return and to build, like I said, their temples uh, to their gods, and apparently even often gave financial support for these rebuilding projects. And so we have found what we call the Cyrus Cylinder that details, in this case, the propaganda, I guess you could say, is that the Babylonian god Marduk supports what Cyrus is doing, and the people of Babylon welcomed him in as the liberator for them. And so Cyrus comes along, and in the cylinder he records how you know, Marduk has now recognized him, and, and he's now their ruler, but that he allows these peoples to go back. Now, it doesn't specifically mention the Jews by name, but we know, based on what he's doing with other peoples, drawing the assumption from Ezra and Nehemiah, that this is what he did also for the Jews to allow them to go back. Something that people don't know about the Old Testament sometimes, I think, is that most of it was not written contemporaneously. And we can tell that by the type of language that's using in the written word and compare that to these other archaeological evidences. I noticed that the problem we have with the Gospels, how they were written 40 to 100 years later, is amplified in the Old Testament because we're not writing decades later. We're writing hundreds of years later. We talked about them writing in different ways, but also they have to take these oral traditions, which we know vary as you pass them along, and try to 
kind of convey those? I mean, the Old Testament is a collection. It's been through editors and, and things, and mostly we think a lot of that is associated again with the exile and a wake-up call that we need to preserve some of these stories and accounts and records because we could be destroyed just like we kind of experienced with Jerusalem and Nebuchadnezzar. And and so that may have been an impetus for them to try to write down more of these. But in the process, you know, and I think you've discussed this in some of your other podcasts, we've got different versions of different stories, sometimes even conflicting in some of their details, because maybe part of their goal was we want to keep all of these because it's been passed down and how it all, you know, fits together or reconciles maybe was a lesser concern to them. For those listeners who are like me, who may not have actually personally read the Old Testament past Genesis, finish us out with the Israelite culture, peoples, and lands at the end of the Old Testament. What does it look like? I think at the end of the Old Testament, it's a much smaller community centered around Jerusalem, where we have Ezra, Nehemiah, Malachi, Haggai, and others who were, in a sense, trying to rebuild this religious community that had been, you know, severely weakened, if not destroyed, by the Babylonians. They rebuild the temple, but it, they don't have the resources that Solomon had, so it's not nearly as impressive, because this is only decades after some who had seen the previous temple wept when they saw this new temple, because it was not the same. Now, what was this temple called? Because I knew that there was Solomon's temple and Herod's temple, but this is an intermediate temple. Yeah, we often refer to it as the second temple, and this begins what we what is my primary of focus is second temple history or Judaism. And basically, when Herod comes along, it's a huge remodel of this temple to make it a grand, impressive Roman structure that he wants it to be in in his time period. It's about 400 years old about by the time Herod comes. And so it's just this kind of much smaller community that would rely probably a lot on agriculture that is under initially the Persians and then as we mentioned then the Greeks come and then finally the Romans. Jared, I'm going to speak blasphemy. Sometimes I don't think that the Old Testament is all that relevant to my life right now. I can see some resonance to what I'm experiencing in my life, but generally I'll go right to the New Testament because it does apply and it does resonate more deeply. Could you just give us top 10 reasons Mormons should study the Old Testament and convince me of the error of my ways? (laughs) Okay, that's that's a tall order here. Let me give you some thoughts. One aspect, certainly, is we talk about the three pillars of the plan of salvation being the creation, fall, and atonement. And the first two of these are part of the early Old Testament, and certainly the future redemption and resurrection are also discussed. Second reason, Jehovah is the God of the Old Testament, and we believe Jesus is Jehovah. Therefore, we should be able to learn more about who Jesus is and how he acts as a God which is more like actually what he is now as a divine being and interacting with uh, his children here on earth. Third, the law of Moses looked towards the sacrifice of Jesus Christ so we can have a deeper appreciation for the redemption through understanding the sacrificial system. Fourth, the Old Testament 
was the scripture of Jesus and the early Christians. That's what they referred to and went to uh, when they wanted support from scripture. They're great examples of covenant making and covenant keeping, and there's some pretty strong warnings for breaking of covenants. I think another reason would be it lays out the house of Israel and some of how God works through them for the immortality and eternal life of man. Some religious scholars use the term salvation history, what God actually does here on this earth to bring about the salvation of his children. I see it throughout the Book of Mormon, and certainly in the Old Testament, it's the house of Israel that is the instrument that God brings his salvation here on earth. Another reason, incredible examples and stories of faith and the great things God has done for his people. There's also some beautiful hymns, psalms, wise proverbs, and deep imagery and poetry. And so kind of the more literary side and aesthetic side can come out in some of those parts of the Old Testament. I think a very simple reason is part of our canon. If we have it, it's part of our standard works, uh, we should know something about it. I think another reason is there's many prophecies yet to be fulfilled relating to our day and in preparation for the end of the world, quote-unquote. We can come to know some of these prophecies that are still yet to happen. And maybe one last reason to better understand what the people of Jesus' time were awaiting and why they lived the way they did when they talked about waiting for Messiah, these kinds of things. Well, it's the Old Testament that we learn some of those things that they were waiting for and why they did the things they did. That's a great list. I'd love to respond to every single one, but we're out of time. We're not done with you. We're going to come back and visit with you about first century Palestine. So you're off the hook for now. See you later. Okay. Thank you very much. Be sure to check out LDSPerspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.